Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature, on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Mi'kmaq people. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I'm on the South Shore, sitting with Josh Clark from South Spore Mushrooms. <laughs> awesome name, Josh. Thanks so much. I will just ask you to tell us a bit about yourself. Um, I have lots of hobbies, and um, I've always been interested in culinary mushrooms, I guess, from from working in the industry of being a cook and a chef by trade. And um, working offshore gives you lots of time to think about what you can do as a side hustle and a passion project. And it's good to have a little hobby job, I guess, that brings in a bit of money on the side and, and um, also to teach my kids and and have a, a fun fun time with it. So uh, growing mushrooms was definitely a passion project for a long time. And um, now that I'm into it, I guess it's just all a learning curve from here on out. So I'm yeah. always learning and learning from my mistakes because I've, <laughs> I've made a few along the way since the CVCR. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so last episode, I re-aired part of a broadcast from Coastal Villages Community Radio, where in an interview with Sarah Tingley, you shared quite a bit about how and why you started South Spore Mushrooms. And uh, first off today, I'm just curious about um, if you just want to generally say, like, what excites you about mushrooms? Um, I, I like the taste and texture of different mushrooms, but I guess the different ways to cultivate them is very interesting to me. Um, working with different substrates and different supplementation has been an, a bit of a chore because certain mushrooms grow better in certain conditions. So a supplement mix for one strain of or genus of mushrooms could differ very, like big time different. Like a, a shiitake is like a long fruiting strain versus a, a fast fruiting strain such as an oyster mushroom. Okay. So you're competing with contaminants and if there's too many sugars in your substrate mix and it's sitting incubation for a long time, there's greater chance of mold and contamination. Mm. So you're kind of playing with that and it's and it's a very slow process. So if you take three weeks of incubation and then you get contamination, you kind of got to start all over again. Yeah. So um, from pasteurization to sterilization and, and different methods of cooking the substrate, basically in layman's terms, it's just very crucial process because if you don't do it right, you're going to be left with a bunch of contamination and you're just adding to your compost pile then. So mm. thankfully I do have a mushroom compost pile, which I'm going to be making recycled organic um, mushroom compost so people can put in their gardens. I love that your like waste product also is also a resource benefit. for... Yeah, because yeah. mushrooms compete against green molds and different type of molds, but plants actually like that type of molds and they actually grow from green molds. So huh. if... Like when I take our spent blocks and we'll put it down in our compost pile and we'll just keep churning it and adding organic compost, we can take that and then use it in our gardens for our, our vegetable gardens. And maybe I'll bag up some and sell it to um, 
people at the market for super cheap, maybe just a couple dollars for maybe a 10 pound bag just to add, because you are getting live mushroom mycelium. It just might not be enough nutrients for the mushrooms to grow because it's already used the, the nutrients in the substrate, mm-hmm. but it's great compost for plants, like I said, and you're actually kind of putting mushrooms into the earth and you might get some oysters in your garden or we have a garden red giant which thrives outside and like something like that would be in that pile so it's it's really neat and to get mycelium growing outside and keep the mushrooms going and and having outdoor garden beds seems really neat too um you are competing with slugs and bugs and and obviously environmental changes and so we're going to stick to the native ones with our area and we we have experimented with some yellow morels which were found wild and I try to propagate them with a little technique I learned online with um, taking the spore prints and kind of splashing it around the yard with some pH water which I usually add some wood stove ashes and some uh, millet or white it's a grain spawn we use. We use white millet. Okay. So um, we take the millet water from when we pressure cook their, the bird seed is basically what it is. Okay. And all the water from that will just add it to the mushroom spawn of the morels and then add wood stove ashes to bring the pH up. And we literally splash it around a yard under the deck by the wood pile and just a little project with the kids. See if it works. See if it doesn't. Um, some mushrooms are very, they're kind of finicky. They want to be in the shade and some communicate with certain types of trees so that type of tree isn't in the area it probably won't grow or maybe it'll like mycelial networks can run for age like oh yeah for for a really long ways until they find a nutrient source right could you say just a little bit about the different types of mushrooms yeah like there's mycorrhizal and there's parasitic there's all different types But if there was a mushroom that was growing in correlation with, say, an oak tree, Mm -hmm. and then someone cut the oak tree down or the oak tree broke off or something happened that that tree was damaged, then that mushroom mycelium would naturally go and look for another source of nutrients because they kind of share. They're in symbiosis with each other, so they kind of exchange nutrients and that's so mind-blowing. Like The more I learn, the more I read, and it's just like... You know, this is a fascinating thing. Fantastic fungi was quite the uh, eye-opener. And it it was neat because I had a great relationship or a great love for mushrooms way before the documentary ever was aired. So, And I know a lot of people watched that and then had a great Um, interest in mushrooms uh since. But working in the industry of culinary arts and working with these really nice mushrooms was, uh, was my catalyst of of learning about them more and then the health benefits and immunological benefits and it's good food. When when I chatted with you uh, yesterday, I guess you said um, every mushroom is medicinal in some way. Yeah, they're all I, medicinal. I somewhere. love to think about that too. So if you're enjoying cooking with mushrooms, it's just one of, I guess a lot of food is like that too, that you can just enjoy eating it and knowing that you're getting different nutrients without even knowing exactly why it's medicinal, but that yeah. most, most whole foods, especially mushrooms are so good for you. They are so good for you. Yeah. And um, like the Agaricus bisporus genus, which is your button mushroom, your common um, cremini or portobello they're just simply different stages of growth and I just learned that not long ago actually I didn't realize that a button and a cremini and a portobello were actually the same genus mm-hmm. okay. and those are a compost mushroom so they would grow 
from a compost substrate. So the mushrooms that we're doing at South Spore are dedicus wood mushrooms. So they would decompose sawdust or wood, wood loving mushrooms okay. versus a compost loving mushroom. So we're just going to stay within that style of mushroom or that type of mushroom. So before hearing more about the mushrooms Josh is growing, we'll take a little sidetrack into mushroom hunting, starting off with some of the necessary precautions and reasonable doubts that come with the territory. Also, I'll take this interruption to let you know that if you'd like to make a donation to help keep this podcast going, please head over to the website at sharedground.ca, where you'll see a button at the bottom of the page to support this show. It's like you find one, it's like, is that what that is? Like, I want a second opinion. It kind of looks like it. It's in the same area. It's around these trees, but it's, I'm not 100% sure. Right. And I know every mushroom's edible once. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it has I, to be I, really delicious I to eat one. I that's... didn't want the abdominal discomfort that can come with certain strains, and mm. others can simply poison you to this point of no return, I guess. Yeah. Your body recycles the poison until you have organ failure, which is absolutely terrifying. And mycophobia is a real thing. Yeah, well, that definitely scares many of us off for good reason, right? Absolutely. Like you have to be absolutely I'm myself, sure. I triple check sometimes, or if mm-hmm. I say, oh, this looks like a certain species there, genus of mushroom that I was looking for, but I'm not quite too sure. So I'm going to get a second opinion. And yeah. those apps that you can get that kind of take a picture of the mushroom... Some of them are accurate, but I've heard some horror stories where people have mistaken mushrooms for a certain type that it might have been, and it turned out to be a completely toxic mushroom. Yikes. I find it interesting that some of those very poisonous mushrooms are edible to other creatures. Some other creatures, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, you can touch it. But you want to wash your hands. (laughs) I just leave them alone. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, my kids know... The poison ones. And there's a couple that are lookalikes. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to mess around with the look, like anything that's no. kind of and looks like anything I've, else. I can confidently go pick a handful of different type of mushrooms. And I know for a fact that it's a hedgehog or it's chaga or it's chanterelle or it's a black trumpet or it's a lion's mane or coral tooth fungus. I know for a fact of those just from the characteristics and having experience. But there was a time that I was really uncertain or it's like... Or I just couldn't believe I actually found it. It's like, oh my goodness, I actually found Hen of the Woods. Like, this is incredible. <gasps> oh, yeah. And and my attacky is, is an ancient name for dancing. It's dancing mushrooms. So the women that found it were dancing because they found this mushroom oh. and that's my attacky. Oh, yeah. So oh, Hen of the neat. Woods or my attacky. And it's a very delicious mushroom. It's got chicken-like texture. Yeah. And it's good for, like, anti-cancer. It's good for... Um, like immune response, but it's okay. also a delicious mushroom. So it yeah. is a functional culinary mushroom all in one, similar to lion's mane, similar to chicken of the woods, oh, like okay. very medicinal, but very delicious. Hmm. I think so. Chicken in the woods and hen of the woods are two different they're ones. Two different okay. Ones. I'm not sure now which so one. Hen of the woods I is was my fed one this and summer. They're very feathery and um, grow in this nice bouquet of of petals okay and then chicken of the woods is very orange and has a yellow rim around the edge and they grow in a shelf like 
Okay. Mushroom. There and possibly mushroom. on a, um, I think it was a fallen softwood tree. Does that make sense? Yeah, we found can, the chicken of the woods. Them, you can find them on oak. Okay. You can find them and beech woods I found. Okay. So, so yes. Can you uh, tell us a bit more about your outdoor growing projects then? So you did that very cool sounding experiment with the, the with spore. The yeah. And what else do you so have in mind for your outdoor? We did out- a couple sawdust beds of oyster. I tracked... I actually try to put three different mushrooms in the same bed. So I get a flush of a different mushroom throughout the year. Oh. So the cooler temperature, you'll get the cooler loving oyster mushroom. And then as it gets more humidity in the air, then there was lion's mane popping up. And then if it's oak, you're going to have shiitakes popping up. And then we had king oyster mushrooms, which we're getting in the fall in the same bed. Really? Like it's it's weird. It moves around and it goes in the ground and they were we were getting oysters popping up out of the grass and then we were getting shiitakes popping up on the other side. So it's like there were the mycelium's literally going underground and going to different nutrient sources in the yard. And then we were taking oak logs, like three inch logs, and making cradles. That's our next project. So we're gonna take I took um beechwood plugs, sterilize them in our pressure cooker. And then added shiitake grain spawn. And then the mycelium grew through all these wood dowels with little, they're fluted. So they have like little grooves in them. And then we will drill the holes in the logs, Mm -hmm. tap the plugs in, and then put hot soy wax over the plugs. Okay. Sorry, I want to share something with you. You haven't done this yet? We're, this is what's come, this okay. is what we're working okay, on. Okay, because <laughs> I actually um about 10 years ago I was got really interested in trying to grow shiitake mushrooms and right. so um and I have a woodland up in Annapolis right. County. And so um I cut some logs off that land oak and I got the just the spawn. It wasn't in plugs, but anyway, same thing. I basically made the cradles for the logs and I drilled all the holes and yeah. then I stuffed the spawn in. And I'd actually heard to do it with um, beeswax, but I, at the time, um, didn't want to use any animal products. And I thought, oh, well, and I had some soy wax from candle making, which was another interest of mine at one point. Um, And so I used the soy wax and it turns out all sorts of creatures love the soy wax and the birds came like almost right away. Um, and just ate it out of there. Right. Okay. So I found that that was like an edible, too edible for, for things outdoors or even indoors if you have a mice problem. Soy wax is delicious, apparently. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't realize. But it, I just bought some soy wax, actually. We have a, a big bag of it. So we plan on doing at least 400 plugs wow. for the next project. And they're already... The incubation process is done. They're completely colonized, and I can just take those fully white plugs and make our cradles. And um, looking forward to how that's going to turn out. It's a slow process, but it's just a fun kind of project with the kids and yeah. see how it takes off. I, I also wanted to share with you and folks that um, it didn't ruin my logs. Like the the wax didn't function in the way I thought. It didn't protect it for as long, but it was still enough, even right. though it got eaten fairly soon. Um, the logs still worked, and I had shiitakes um, nice. growing out of it for years, actually. Yeah, you will. So, so yeah, that's neat that you're going to do that. Well, we're doing sawdust blocks of shiitake right now. So it's a filter patch bag. And for our fast fruiting strains, you just cut a little horseshoe kind of in the plastic and the mushrooms grow in a big floral, like a big flourish. And the shiitakes, we take the block completely out of the bag and then we are going to shock them with cold water. Right. And then they produce. 
Uh And you can do that a few times and get a few flushes from one block. So basically until the nutrients are basically taken completely out of the block. And it starts off as a 10-pound block, but when that's done, it's light as a feather. Oh. Yeah, it takes all the humidity and moisture. But then you can kind of throw them in cold water and shock them and get another flush. Basically, you do that until there's nothing left for them to grow. Mm-hmm. And then once the spent block is complete, we just throw it in the compost. Okay. They take a long time. Like, there's three months, basically, to grow shiitake. So if I can stockpile the incubated blocks and have them on hand, then mm-hmm. when I get to the time of production, I can move so many in, fruit them, and keep a cycle going. So that way, when it comes time for spring, I already have a stockpile of fully colonized shiitake blocks. Okay. So throughout the summer, I can just take them from incubation into the fruiting room, and then I can fruit what I would like as I go. Maybe it picks up in production, or there's more customers looking for mushrooms so i can simply say oh i'm gonna put five more blocks in or i'm gonna do 20 this time because i picked up another client Mm. so it's 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 a learning curve i've made lots of mistakes i've wasted product i've had contamination to deal with um trying to do things cost effectively so it reflects our prices because i really do want the cheapest prices going for these culinary mushrooms and functional mushrooms so Moving forward, we're putting a waste oil burner in our furnace because we use um, high-pressure steam to cook and pasteurize or sterilize our production blocks. So if I can get a waste oil burner, then I can use deep fryer oil, and that's a carbon neutral. So it's good for the environment. I'm not burning fossil fuels, which I really don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we've... Pricing up different waste oil burners, that way, moving forward, we can have a cost-effective way to cook our substrate. Yeah. Yeah, that's great that there are certain methods that are both um, environmentally friendly and cost-effective, but sometimes yeah. they don't match like that. But I'm, I'm curious, too, when you're just saying that, it's, are you um, getting some of the waste veggie, or will you be getting some of the waste veggie oil from some of the same places that you're... Um, providing your mushrooms to yes, the same definitely. restaurants that was and a cool I, loop i work offshore and we have um fryer oil as well ah. and um we're switching to tallow actually because it's better for you and it's better product so i don't know how tallow is going to work because it could gel up or get like it firms up when it's cool so you have to kind of have a heater tank to uh-huh. keep it melted but mm. um Moving forward, we're going to definitely be using waste oil to cook our product. And we have biodegradable, autoclavable bags that we grow the mushrooms in because unicorn grow bags actually make a biodegradable product now. So that plastic bag that it's growing in, it's a special filter patch bag that's autoclavable. That What do you mean by autoclavable? Autoclave is a pressure cooker. So it can oh. handle 15 PSI at 245 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. Because under pressure, temperature is greater. Water boils at 212, 100 Celsius. But under a pressure table or a steam chart, it increases with pressure. So temperature. So <laughs> I was I made some biodiesel as an experiment to try to see if I can burn a biodiesel product, product versus um, using furnace oil. Mm-hmm. And it did work, but it was burning a lot of carbon. So it carboned up the fire tubes in our furnace. 
So I didn't get the proper temperature, which didn't give me the proper pressure. Mm -hmm. So if the pressure doesn't at least meet 15 PSI, then I have to compete with molds. Any contamination, any of if it's not killed before we inoculate, then the mycelium I put in that substrate is going to be competing with bread molds or black molds, cobweb mold, like lipstick mold. There's all different types that really can get in there. And then you, you can see it in the bag. You'll have a patch of dark mold and then you'll see the mycelium basically trying to consume or compete. Oh. And it goes around it and encases it in. And you can see the mycelium, it's called hyphae, the little tiny fingers. And they're literally trying to, encasing it and trying to compete with substrate. And because they're both taking the nutrients of the substrate. So then what happens? Can you still use those mushrooms sometimes? You do not want any contamination anywhere in your farm of any sort. Mm -hmm. Like normally, if you see contamination, it's gone. It's going right to the compost pile. Just because you don't want the mold spores in your farm because it's microscopic. And it's everywhere and it's on our clothes. And when I go outside and I come in, I usually keep the laboratory closed. So our autoclave is open on, I call it the dirty side. So it's where we mix the substrate and we add the supplementation and we bag it and then we tray it up and put it inside the autoclave. Once we cook it, we open it up inside the lab through the wall. And in the lab has special filters of HEPA. HEPA filters for the fresh air coming into the room. So it's positively charged with filter spec air. Hmm. And then there's a HEPA filter on our desk that we do the work directly in front of. It's called a laminar flow hood. It's just basically a curtain of clean lab spec air passing right over your workspace. So as you are working with these very delicate mycelium cultures, you are competing with air that's dirty basically so if i can clean the air in the room and then i clean the air going in front of the workspace my chance of contamination is drastically reduced Mm -hmm. and then people say well i thought mushrooms grow in the wild and they just grow on anything they do but when you're inside and you're dealing with supplements and sugars and 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 if you're fussy fussy about what kind of mushrooms you want to grow yeah and and it's like, I don't want to grow bread mold. I want to grow right. lion's mane. Yeah, so, grow something. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's that's a huge contaminant. And it, it, there's a lot to growing mushrooms, but it's it's all on your equipment, at, basically, because um, if you don't have the right equipment, you're, you're, con- you're competing with contaminants that will take over your crop. And it's not like it's, it's expensive to do it if you're going to do it because you have... You have to boil water and if you're not pressure cooking you have to pasteurize and that takes that could take 30 hours of steam steam bath so then you got to kind of babysit it and you have to keep the water to it and you have to keep the heat so it's like you know how much can you do in one batch so you're sterilizing say 10 blocks in a barrel for 30 hours or you're doing 500 pounds or 50 blocks in an autoclave for two and a half hours. Hmm. So that's kind of what we went. We spent a lot of money on the autoclave to keep the cost and production time low. Right. So um, I'm making my own sub soda substrate. It's saving me a lot of money. It's a good workout. Kids help. It's fun. So, and I just kind of bought some, a piece of farm equipment, like a hammer mill for, for grains and stuff. And, 
And I got the idea from uh, What the Fungus, WTF Mushrooms in Alberta. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, Brian Callow, he was a great help. He, I actually bought some cultures from him, and I bought some uh, laminar flow hood filters from him. And he's been a great help for me, actually. And, um, yeah, and then I noticed there's a couple of farms popped up around since I started. There's a guy in Aylesford and um, Feeney's Fungi, and he's been great. Actually, we've been sharing kind of ideas, and he's trying to expand, and we had a good conversation about um, substrate mixers, and he does a totally different method than I do. He has a totally different setup, huh. which and it's neat because you can do it different ways. I've watched people grow oysters in laundry baskets in their backyard, hmm. and, then I've, and some people use wood pellets and... And I use sawdust that I make, and I have bulk sawdust, oak sawdust. And um, he does pasteurization, and I do sterilization. He uses like an atmospheric um, sterilizer with steam. I do under pressure with with an autoclave. Um, the techniques are similar. So, and there's a guy in Bridgewater, actually, a young kid, the fancies fungi. He's oh, he's yeah. got a little farm going, and he's. He's doing it kind of like Feeney's, I believe, and he's just got a little thing going. It's a passion. I think he's really, um, he's doing pretty good with the markets, I must at, say. At the Bridgewater Market, I yeah. think I've seen him. Yeah, and um, again, like, it's like, cool, you know, there's other people doing it, but nobody was even, t- like, I never heard anything when I first started. Yeah, that's interesting right? that it's just really exploded in people's imagination. And I've met a couple people and... along my way explaining like the farm to someone. They say, oh, I thought about doing that, or I know someone that's starting it up. And hmm. it's like, yeah, it's it's getting popular. Did I think it was easier than it is? Yes. Okay. I thought it was much easier. Hmm. Did I realize how aseptic you have to be? I did, and I, I didn't, because I've gone in the lab. Full lab coat, gloved up, fresh out of a shower, HEPA filters on. I've done my lab work. I've taken agar samples from a Petri dish to make liquid cultures and to make grain spawn cultures. And I thought I had everything good and I'm in front of this filter and I have everything wiped down and I got contamination. And, I, and it's like, I where did I go wrong? What did I do? Some little thing like hitchhiked on your eyelash it's just from the shower to there. Or exactly. Who knows? Exactly. And it's that... It's that touchy. Wow. When you're doing agar plates, liquid cultures, and grain spawns from from the actual mycelium sample, tissue sample, to growing the mushroom out the bag, it's like that step in between is super, super aseptic. Hmm. And and I'm uh, now I'm wondering, of course, do you have a, a background in science at all? Or were you no. interested in school in science? Or how are you uh, you're yeah. talking to other people and learning things? But how, how did you teach yourself all this? I work offshore for five weeks and I have a lot of downtime or time that I'm working alone and I had listened to a lot of podcasts and I just did a lot of research and I looked up specific topics regarding mushroom cultivation, people that have started their own farms and their journeys and their troubles and their, and how they, the method of it, because like I said, there's so many different ways of cultivating mushrooms. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of, took ideas again from Brian from WTF Mushrooms or from Paul Stamets from uh, Fantastic Fungi. Um, There's other videos online, how to make autoclaves, how to make pasteurization, how to make a laminar flow hood, how to grow mushrooms in your closet to the Martha tent, they call it. It's just like a little 
basically a little portable closet with a humidity box and simple low tech methods to what we have at South Spore Mushrooms, which is a 10 foot long autoclave where we can cook 500 pounds of substrate at one time, which right. is super, super efficient. And it works so well. And I'm so glad that I went that way because originally it's what I wanted to do. As I was learning about pasteurization and sterilization, once I understood that you can do this much faster and cheaper if you go this way versus that way. Okay. So it's like, I'll spend the money now and I'll invest in the business now. That way, in the long run, I'm saving way, mm. like night and day, way more than I could ever in a pasteurization. And I don't like the fact that it takes that long because you kind of got to babysit it. Mm. Because if you have a heating element and water and sawdust in a bag and the water doesn't come in or something happens to the water and you're heating it mm. or there's a, there's float switches and if it dried up on you or if it caught on fire, it could be a fire hazard. Right. And I didn't really want to sit and babysit something for 25 or 30 hours. So this way I can just get up in the morning, start the furnace, bring it up to temperature, load the autoclave while that's happening. Once it gets up to pressure and temperature, set my timer for two and a half hours. Two and a half hours later, shut the furnace off, let it cool down. The next morning I can open the autoclave, empty out the autoclave in the lab make sure the temperature is down. And then once the temperature is at a workable temperature, I can inoculate with whatever genus I'm working with. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It must be satisfying though, to have learned this and to have like over time, because you had to learn so many different aspects to the, yeah, like you have to learn about um, biology and ecology and the, and the, I guess, very specific science techniques of being you know, the aseptic environment. Yes. But definitely. then also now you're having to learn marketing and, um, promotion yeah <laughs> all and these like, things and then you're trying to I, how can i get my product out there and yeah and how can i produce enough product to get out there and how do i do it without messing up my steps and i like i said i learned from my mistakes and there's things i've done that cost me a couple hundred bucks and there's things i've done that only cost a few bucks and i had a success that I never thought it or it was just like, wow, I actually grew these. Like I did this. This oh, is actually yeah. working. I actually did it. Yeah. And then, you know, you cut some mushrooms off and run upstairs and cook them and eat them. It's like, oh my God, these are so good. I grew this myself in my own house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so we're going to need to find out too, as a chef, um, will you share something about like your favorite mushrooms or oh, like yeah. maybe give us some tips for cooking certain things or certain ways? My favorite mushrooms are all mushrooms. I love them all. <laughs> Okay. Cooking them, one of my favorite ways of cooking mushrooms would have to be, no matter what mushroom it is, whatever edible culinary mushroom you like, even agaricus bisporus, the button mushrooms. If I'm going to fry them up, I'm going to use some butter and shallots, caraway seeds, ground caraway, oh. some raw honey, and some salt. And to me, like that is such a good flavor okay so yeah just saute shallots butter caraway olive oil if you don't want to use butter tallow if you do tallow and butter is one of my i cook with a lot of tallow and butter okay. and it is just absolutely it's so good it's like the sweet and salty mm. kind of characteristics that i really really like um i also like them with garlic and shallots and sherry vinegar uh -huh. simply Ooh. put just like acidic but i like the sweet and salty too so those are my personal favorite ways if i make them i usually just do those okay yeah, yeah neat i never tried cooking mushrooms with caraway i don't oh, think it's so, so good it's Definitely. such a unique flavor too so you get the caraways really 
just like it's very once you taste it you can never you'll never ever forget it kind of thing and then the honey is the sweet and then the salt it just really wakes up your taste buds i cook all mushrooms well i will never eat a raw mushroom raw mushroom and i just learned this not long ago that you should never eat raw mushrooms of any kind they say well they're in my salad and they put them in the salad at the grocery store and i eat raw button mushrooms all the time mm. but what i didn't realize is the cell wall of the mushroom is actually very hard to digest mm -hmm. unless it's thoroughly cooked. So again, just make sure you cook your mushrooms because you don't want to have any abdominal discomfort. No. Say. I've eaten raw mushrooms not that long ago before I heard like, oh, it's a raw button mushroom. Like I would just always do that. I love them. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that you shouldn't. Yeah. Especially the compost ones. Like there is issues with, because those mushrooms are grown in compost too. So it's like, right. is there any bacteria or... Right. Well, yeah, that's another good reason. Yeah. So it's like, I didn't, it didn't really ever, never dawn on me to think about it, but it was Paul Stamets that actually, I read that from or heard that from, don't eat raw mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Stamets, the mushroom guru. He's the king. I'll have he's, to he's leave um, a bunch of references too. I will in the show notes oh for goodness, folks, because yeah. there's so many good things that you've, sh you've, you've shared with us. Oh, I guess I was wondering, um, you mentioned in your, the last interview I heard with you about your kids or at least your older son being yeah. quite involved in there somewhat involved in the business and i'm just wondering like what he's particularly interested in or how it is to kind of do things like this with some of your family involved and well he's more interested in the the lab stuff so he likes learning about making liquid cultures and like the aseptic technique and he was having fun like sealing the bags and labeling them and just keeping stock and inventory now my youngest boy i have twins i have a twin boy and a girl and then i have my oldest 11 year old the twins are nine and when it comes to like bagging production blocks i have a great little workforce behind me okay. because we do everything manually i have a big mixer that i literally add the sawdust the water and then whatever supplements i use a little bit of gypsum powder some wheat bran um there's different recipes for different strains and i'm still experimenting with it I'm doing another strain now called Woods Ear, and that's just going up. I didn't actually fruit it yet, but it's. I had success with my grain spawn transfer, and I didn't have contamination. So moving forward, we're going to be doing Woods Ear, Piopino, Nemeco, which I was having troubles with those big time. For, and it was my supplement recipe. I didn't have the right... Maybe mm -hmm. I had too much or, some, or not enough of another supplement. So that's... Um, that, Definitely a, a concern of mine of what I'm doing wrong because I've had a couple failed attempts now and I've got to reach out to a friend and just kind of get some tips. So um, I'm just going to take it as a learning curve and not get discouraged because, I mean, it's so much fun to do it and yeah. the reward of it actually working is it's been so rewarding. It's been so awesome to be able to go to a restaurant and drop a case of mushrooms off and just like exchange a, a friendly conversation or a, a, a recipe suggestion or a feature it's like oh we're gonna put a mushroom feature on i'm like oh did you ever consider doing this that or the other thing I'm like oh that's a good idea i'll do that tonight nice. i'm like there's no such thing as a secret recipe <laughs> okay <laughs> there should never be a secret recipe i tell everybody whatever whatever method i use that works for me that's you know what i mean if you're willing to give it a go and go for it I share everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably been really helpful as you learn how to grow mushrooms and talk with other people and you're helping each other. That's nice yeah. to know, too. It is. Um, 
Well, it'll be interesting to talk to you again in the future and see how your outdoor experiments are going. And if it's that's exciting, like, actually, because yeah. I'm kind of like, you know, walk around the yard. It's like, oh, yeah, I splashed some more elf spawn there and I splashed some more elf spawn down there. And then I had this um, landscaper cloth by our garden beds. So I kind of lifted up the landscape cloth and I splashed them under there. So then I'd go down a couple of weeks later and I'd lift up the mat and then you can see this white mycelial um, network already. Cool. And I'm like, is that mold? Oh, is can't... that red varnish shelf mushroom spawn? Mm. Is that the morel that I put there? Is so, that something else from somewhere else? Like, I'm wondering what that mycelium is. You know, like that's clearly a white mat of mycelium. Uh-huh, Did but it, until it fruits, you don't know what... Until it fruits, I won't know what it is. It yeah. could be anything. We'll leave it there with that mystery of what types of mushrooms Josh will find growing in his experimental areas when the conditions are right. As mentioned, the last episode before this one was based on Coastal Village's Community Radio's interview with Josh, and so if you'd like to hear more and haven't already, you can check that out. At the end of that episode, Josh was describing returning to land after five weeks at sea and finding refuge in the forest. I'm going to play a 15-second clip from that because it made me think about my perspective as a land dweller and made me wonder if those of us who spend our whole lives on land could experience the forest with the senses and appreciation of someone who just returned home from a long stretch at sea. Being on a ship for five weeks with electronics and pumps and people and it's like a lot of sensory overload and I find when I come home I just need to depress and I find a long walk in the forest much needed. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans. (laughs) 